0: welcome to network capital era i love to see our community members do interesting things um you've gone on from history and geography to public policy and entrepreneurship we're very proud of you how are you doing today
1: uh, thank you, it's, I'm doing great and it's a pleasure to be here chatting to you.
0: So Ira, tell me, you've uh, would you call your career a linear one? Did you always know what you wanted to do?
1: Um, no, I think I would first caveat that by saying, look, I'm 29. So in the grand scheme of things, I'm also just starting out like many people, um, many of the community members at Network Capital. But it's definitely been a fun and varied decade. Um, and I, I think everything I've done has been very organic and um, I wanted to study politics and geography and I did that and then sort of accidentally fell into entrepreneurship because of a problem I was interested in, um, not because I saw myself in any way as an entrepreneur, so it's been a series of happy accidents that has led me here.
0: Yeah. We call it serendipity or network capital or luck surface area. But still, uh, talk to me about your early careers. Um, what was uh, what was college like? What was school like? What were some things that you were interested in as a, as a, as a teenager and a college student?
1: Yes, yeah, so I was lucky. I grew up in Bangalore um, in sort of kind of cosmopolitan community. I was very lucky to go to a school called Aditi School in Bangalore, which is really exceptional because it... Re- I think quite rare for Indian schools. It doesn't focus so much on you know um, memorizing for exams. It really kind of opens your mind to you know debating with teachers, reading, exploring new interests, ask, uh, asking different questions. So that, and also you know having parents who were always talking about politics and things like that at the dinner table really made me interested in the world around me. Um, so I, as an undergraduate, I studied politics and geography at King's College, Cambridge which was amazing experience. I left India at the age of 18, like it wasn't just about, you know, the education, which was fantastic, but also, you know, the cultural differences, living in a new country, meeting new people, just, you know, exposed to so many new ideas. And I think, you know, most degrees are not just about the degree, they're about everything you get from interacting with people around you. yeah, and then and then sort of classic, not knowing what to do after university, like many people, I think in the community, I decided to work in consulting. I worked in consulting in London for a few years. Um, hated every minute of it because I just instantly knew that this form of working, which is quite hierarchical um, and structured wasn't really for me. So I didn't stick around very long. I stuck around two years and, and then went for my graduate studies to the US.
0: Yeah. I don't know if you know. On uh, Network Capital, we have a nano degree called "I don't know what I want to do with my life." Yeah, and uh, it's really popular among people because um, a lot of ambitious millennials um, across uh, different countries have this problem of figuring out one, you know, what to do in university and want to do what to do after, and this confusion sort of doesn't end. And consulting seems to be, you know, an additional few years to figure out, but for some people it works out great and for some people who want more skin in the game sometimes it doesn't
1: yeah i think one thing i will say for consulting although you know it's it can be difficult it can be long hours is that um you know at the age of 21 just being thrown into the corporate world teaches you an immense amount and even you know sometimes we have people to who apply to us today for jobs fresh out of, of college and i say to them you know we're a small social enterprise but if you you can come to us eventually, but to really build skills like being confident, speaking, presenting, using Excel, things like that. It's actually quite great to go work in a consulting firm for a few years because you just get a little bit of confidence and you know you know how to conduct yourself in a way, which is almost, it's almost like an extension of university, but just for the workplace. Hmm. Um, and you do get a lot out of it.
0: Yeah. How did you decide to study policy after that, public policy?
1: So I think the the my frustration with the work I was doing in consulting was that it was you know I was working for big telecom companies and banks and I just wasn't invested in the the mission of the work I was doing you know selling mortgages it, I think if you boil it down to what I was doing I was trying to sell more mortgages or sell more fo- phone contracts to people in the UK and that wasn't really interesting to me and obviously having grown up in Bangalore and traveled so much i i was very interested in social impact, so I always knew that that was the kind of work I wanted to be in. Um, But then, as you say, well, I want to be in social impact, where do I start? And the the two-year public policy degree at the Kennedy School at Harvard is kind of perfect because it You know, it grounds you in thinking about policy and politics, but it's also, you know, American universities are fantastic. They are just a room to explore. You can go to different schools. Um, And it was really giving me more time to experiment with different things and find myself, I guess.
0: So did you do an MPA or an MPP? I did
1: the MPP. Yeah.
0: And what's the difference?
1: So I think the MPP is just a bit of a more rigorous degree in the sense that there's a lot of core modules. So you have to do statistics, you have to do economics, econometrics, things like that. I think the MPA is just more open-ended.
0: And for you, it did meet uh, the purpose because you'd worked in consulting, studied uh, politics, economics, etc. in college.
1: Yeah, I think you know to be honest again like as I was saying with my undergraduate degree I don't really think the exact degree matters so much even at graduate level whether it's an MPP or an MPA or an MBA it's a two year degree where you learn a little bit in the classroom but a lot outside of the classroom and the majority yeah. learn is you know at the Kennedy School they have the forum where they have presidents of different countries come to talk and your classmates have come from all over the world doing interesting work all over the world so it's really the people you meet and it sounds trite because everybody says this it's because it's true it's the people you meet and and the out-of-class things you attend so I think it doesn't really matter to get too caught up with the name of the degree
0: You're right. Like um, I have degrees um, in liberal arts and philosophy, engineering and an MBA. And of course, the in-classroom experience is one part of it. But um, what happens outside class, the the network, the lessons, the conversations with professors and guest speakers, I think that's also a very important component of learning.
1: Absolutely.
0: So you told me early on that there was a problem that fascinated you, a problem that you really wanted to address. Talk to me about that.
1: So um, this was, you know, going back to my days of consulting, I was living in London and I had, you know, was always trying to make more sustainable choices in my life. And I had come across the concept of menstrual cup, which is a reusable period product. This is like back in 2015. I think there were no, uh, there were not many products like this in India, but they were just catching on in Scandinavia and the UK. And I tried uh, and switched to a menstrual cup way back. And then on, I was on holiday visiting my parents in Bangalore over Christmas and the cook who was working in our house had missed a couple of days of work and when she, you know, we thought that she was ill and then when she came back to work I had asked her what happened, her name was Mary, I asked her what happened and she said, that she actually had really bad rashes and infection, I think, from these very poor quality sanitary pads she was using. And and at the time, I'm sure you're familiar, you know, there was such a push and there still is for um, low cost sanitary pads in villages Mm -hmm. and among low income communities and cities. And um, so I asked her to show me these pads because, you know, I had always had high quality pads. so I didn't know what she was talking about. And when she showed them to me, I would, they were literally like this thick, like diapers. Nobody could use them. I mean, I was amazed that, that these were being promoted. And so I showed her the period product I was using, which was this menstrual cup from the UK. And I talked to her about it and said, would you want to use it? And she said, yeah, sure. So I brought her one and she switched to it like this instantly. I mean, she found it so easy to use. And and, you know, for the the listeners who aren't sure um, about what this is, maybe your male listeners, a menstrual cup is essentially a reusable period product. Um, It's shaped like a little cup. It's made from medical grade silicone and you basically, you use it, sterilize it and use it again, it's super safe. So um, Mary found this so comfortable to use. And then she sort of informally started asking me, um, can I have one for my um, sister, for my nieces? And then it was almost like this little a network of domestic workers, you know, like a, maybe a friend's domestic worker. And I would just gift them cups from the US or the UK whenever I was traveling back. And this was completely off, informal, completely organic, but it went on for years until I was at the Kennedy School in 2017. 2018 and was thinking I'm spending $300 on 10 diva cups like something is not adding up here there must be a better way to do this and it was then that I sat down with a professor on um, my entrepreneurial finance professor Carl Byers and started talking through the problem and then we actually came up with the business idea
0: for us. So the business idea was uh, manufacturing the cups and selling them at a lower cost in emerging markets.
1: So I think we had, uh, there were sort of two problems that we had identified, which we wanted to work on. One was that existing menstrual cups, even the one I was using or the one I had gifted Mary was still quite difficult to use. Menstrual cups are, were, and to some extent are niche. And that's because there hasn't been much in, there hadn't been much innovation in the design. So the product itself, we thought, is there anything we can do to make a much better product? And then the second problem was, um, you know, a high quality menstrual product is really expensive. How can we make it accessible to people like Mary? So how can we, you know, either subsidize it or come up with a model that makes it accessible?
0: And tell me about your first 100 days, the naming of the company, the incorporation, all the fun stuff. So
1: Asan, like you obviously know, means easy uh, in Hindi and a couple of other languages. So the mission is to make people's lives easy. The name literally just came to me as soon as I thought about what I was trying to achieve. Um, so the first, I guess, before even registering the company, the first 100 days were probably while I was still at the Kennedy School working really hard on the product. So I worked with an engineer from the Harvard Design School, lovely Ecuadorian woman. Um, and we actually made four versions of the Asan Cup. So we would um, make, one, make one design. And the innovation that our product has is among other things it has a ring that makes it really easy to remove and we have a design patent for that Um, so we would make the product we had a trial group in India with a a low-income community in Karnataka and we had a trial group in the U.S. and we would get these women to use our product make detailed notes give us feedback and then we'd improve it and we actually did that four times until we had the perfect perfect menstrual cup um, which was around the time I graduated and then um, Because the intention was really to focus on rural communities, I immediately moved back to Bangalore, which is where I grew up, after eight, nine years of being away, and um, just started working for one year on giving the product out for free and understanding the acceptability. Were you
0: funded at that time, Ira?
1: No, so we're still bootstrapped today. Um, we've been lucky that we've got a lot of you know, awards and won some pitch competitions along the way. So um, before coming back to India, I managed to get a little bit of funding from my, uh, my Cambridge college, who were really invested in supporting the idea. And that's kind of what got us launched.
0: Okay, great. So the product uh, you, is, uh, you sort of know the problem, you know the market. Um, yeah. How about building the team and then really doing some A-B testing on the ground?
1: Yeah, so so as I said, the first year was really about testing, not thinking too much about revenue. And I think one of the first things we realized very quickly, we worked with a small pilot group in Kanakapura and Karnataka. One of the things we realized very quickly is the people, uh, low-income women and girls, love this product and benefit from it hugely. They find it easy to use, they can attend school, attend work, it's very emancipating. But at the same time, even if we were to provide it at cost, they wouldn't be able to afford it upfront. Um, at the same time, you know, so many of the people who had, I, I had never at first envisioned this as a product for developed markets, but the people who had joined our pilot group in the US and the UK, um, we're coming back with feedback like this is so much better than existing menstrual cups. We love this product. Can you can we buy it? And that's actually when we flipped our model and said, you know, let's sell this to people who can afford it and have a revenue model like that. And then we can always redistribute. Redistribute and give it for free or subsidize it to people who can't afford it. Um, So it was around that one in the first year that I came up with the one for one donation model. So for every cup we sell, we donate one for free Um, and then um, kind of having that model in mind started hiring you know very specific roles and I think you know uh, Assan is incorporated as a for-profit and non-profit both so the for-profit sells and the non-profit does the social impact work and I think that very neatly lends itself to the kind of hires you need so we have a head of impact who looks over the, the entire kind of donation donation side and then um, our for-profit side is more operations e-commerce marketing
0: yeah uh, can you educate us about the pricing of the menstrual cups in different markets?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think something um, that is an, an, a distinction that's really important to me is, um, you know, companies that Uh, make their own manufacture their own period products and companies that buy and sell period products now in India, unfortunately we have very little regulation about what goes into period products, I mean it's amazing these are things that are inserted into your body, yet they have the same, the same um, level of regulation as like a pen, anything can go into a period product. Um, and as a re- and the, as a result, you have um, a whole lot of sort of wellness companies buying and selling pads, tampons, menstrual cups from, you know, Alibaba or similar websites, white label products, we don't really know what goes into them, and then they repackage them and resell them. So th- they sort of don't have any ownership over the product. Um, I think as a result of sort of... Ha- more stringent levels of regulation um, and quality checks in some other countries, for example, in Scandinavia, um, in North America, it's much more common for a company to actually um, have a a design that they own, like our design patent, and to actually manufacture a product themselves so that they own the entire quality process and then to, to sell the product that they own. And that's the model Asan has. So we're basically one of the only companies in India who are you know, manufacturing and selling and owning the design for our own menstrual cup. Um, And because of the really high quality, our cup is sold for around $25, which is very competitive compared to a period product, say in the UK or the US, but it is on the higher side compared to a menstrual cup in India, uh, but very much because of this distinction. We're not buying and selling. We actually own like a huge manufacturing mold, (laughs) which we've invested in, yeah.
0: But uh, that's a question of strategy and ethics. Tell me about that, the strategy first and then the ethics you have touched upon actually.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, the, the thing is, the thing with the area in which I work is that it's incredibly personal because I am a user of the product. And so are most of our core team. I mean, we actually just have one man on our team. So the rest of the team are also users of our product. And I think because we are our own consumers, we have such a strong idea that we will not sell a product that we would not love to use. So, everything starts from us testing everything ourselves. You know, even if it's expanding our product range, it all starts from us looking at the problem ourselves and testing the product ourselves. And I think, um, to put it bluntly, many sort of women's health and especially period product brands in India. Uh, are led by men, they have male founders, who are not people who can understand or test the products themselves. And as a result would be much more comfortable importing a menstrual cup that they can't really try themselves, you know, and then just selling it. And then, and I think that's the core distinction in our strategy. I, whether it's a, a rural woman in, or in, or it's a woman in New York or London. It doesn't matter, everyone deserves access to the highest quality period product. And I will not give anyone a period product that I myself would not use myself.
0: And how are you thinking about distribution? What markets are you operational in?
1: So um, again, this is developed quite organically. Um, Asan does a couple of different things. So we have our B2C sales, which are online, made um, primarily driven by e-commerce and we're already you know pretty well established in India and the UK. So that's mainly tier one, tier two cities in India and across the UK. Um, and we're really looking uh, to launch in similar markets to the UK, like uh, Europe and eventually the US. And that's because there's a lot of acceptability for our product, and there's a, a lot of enthusiasm for our one for one donations as well. Um, mm-hmm. And then for those cups that we sell, where we always match it with a donation to a woman in or a girl in a village in India. Most of our work is in rural India, um, so that's you know across the country. And then we also do a lot of sort of partnerships with uh, you know CSR and different organizations in India who are looking to scale projects like this. Um, and so that really allows us to reach scale. So we're now present. Um, we have 36 villages in Kanakapura which have completely switched to the Cup. So that's nearly 10,000 women. Um, so that's a slightly different piece of work because we also get a little bit more into the implementation, the behavioral change model. So it's not just a product that we're giving out. It's a whole program of how do you get an entire village of thousands of women to, to switch from one product to another, to switch their way of thinking and their way of life a little bit. So, so that's where, you know, impact team is really focused on behavioral change.
0: Do you want to talk to us about that? I think a lot of our listeners in in the UK, India, and I think around the world would be super interested in figuring out how such a change is happening on the ground.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'd be happy to talk about it. And I think um, we've done a lot of experimentation in this space. And the most important thing that, that makes, you know, the Asan As- Cup adoption rate in rural areas is 90% consistently, which means that nine out of 10 people who receive our product t- t- uh, six months later or a year later will still be using it. And that is much higher than a sanitary pad, for example, or, um, you know, or, or other other products that are distributed. So um, I think that the, there's a couple of things I've talked about how much better the product itself is and the innovation that has gone into the product that makes it good. But the most important thing for the the successful adoption is the fact that we always um, empower the community. To carry out this intervention themselves. So it's never the Aslan team going directly to a new village. Um, you know, most of us live in Bangalore, English is our first language. It's never us going directly to a community and saying use this product because there's very low levels of trust if we were to try and do that. Um, It actually, you know, to to achieve this kind of adoption rate, it takes us six months because what we do is we first will find um, usually an NGO, if not working with, you know, local health workers, ASHA and Anganwadi workers, it would be an NGO who's very, very embedded in that community. And then we'll start by giving um, the women employees at that NGO our product and explaining the benefits to them and sort of having a, a three month very in depth process of them testing it and giving us their feedback. And inevitably after three months, they always come back to us saying, I mean this completely changed my life i can i don't have to just to go into some of the issues you know i don't have to um carry soiled pads in my bag because i don't have access to a dustbin i don't have to burn pads in the middle of the night i don't have to scrub cloth rags anymore so so the the difference to their lives is immense and they always recognize that and then they come back to us and say can we have some more for our community and it's we really discuss together how they are going to do that distribution, and in a, and then we do a train-the-trainer program where all of them are equipped to have all of the information to talk about the product to their community. Um, you know, we work in every local language in terms of giving them user guides, materials, and videos, and then um, we basically employ them really to to go and, and spread the word, and then it's up to them to convince their community. And for, you know, for a girl in a, in a village to hear this from her aunt or her older sister is so much more convincing than to hear it from me. And, and what she's hearing is, oh my God, you know, it's, it's like a few products in your life that completely change your life. And what she's hearing is, you know, you can now exercise, you can go to school, it's gonna be amazing. And she's hearing that from someone she trusts and that's why um, it's so successful. That's fascinating.
0: Um, it reminds me a bit about how um, products achieve that product market fit uh, in different ways. And I think that in your case, the way it's achieving PMF in a tier one, tier two cities is very different from villages. And that's expected in, in a country as complex in India. In the UK, is it, uh, is it similar or are you doing something different?
1: So it's really quite different in the sense that Our our product, I really would say it's the best period product because it's super affordable. It lasts for 10 years. It's very sustainable and it's the most comfortable period product. You can swim, you can exercise. But if you look at all the different messaging and benefits it has, I think different messages really resonate with different groups. And what we found in the UK is the the two messages that resonate above all are one sustainability, because there is that sort of level of eco-consciousness. There's a lot of um, consciousness about plastic waste in the UK, Um, you know, uh, tampons that people use, which are flushed, clogging the water streams. You know, it's horrible statistics like about the amount of um, pesticides from tampons and oestrogen found in tap water and things like that. These are the messages that resonate with people and that push them to want to try our product. Um, And then the other message that really works is this one for one donation, a woman or girl in the UK knowing that every time she buys a product that she's contributing to a better life for someone in India is also a very strong message. I would say these two messages are not the most salient in urban India. There are other messages that are salient in urban India, Um, definitely affordability, uh, you know, because we're still thinking in terms of spending, of course, the Indian middle class is thinking about spending. So this is how much you're spending uh, on pads in 10 years. This is how much you'll save. That's an important message. Um, And then also so you
0: show that the total a cost lot. of ownership yeah. calculation
1: etc absolutely and then very much around you know the health as well because uh, in the uk you could i guess again coming back to this regulation and quality standards you you would as a, as a woman in the uk you would assume that when you go online and buy a period product you know nine times out of ten it's going to be high quality the brand would have manufactured it they would probably adhere to similar standards like us asan does uh, in India that's not the case so you know it's a lot of education to people who come to us saying hey your product is 1800 and I saw a menstrual cup for 300 what's going on and and then we really have to bridge that education gap to say well it's 300 for a reason right it's because the person who is making it is not making it they're buying and selling it as a result we don't know what what quality is it, it is you can buy it but it might leak um, it might have other issues for you so it, it's worth thinking this is this is your body and it's worth making a, an investment." informed and empowered decision about the products you're going to use
0: yeah and uh, entrepreneurship is not a breezy ride it's an adventurous one so uh, what bothers you if anything these days or what's uh, what are some of the challenges in this market
1: Uh, so there are quite a few challenges but I think um, one thing that really bothers me is miss which we come across over and over is misconceptions uh, that people in cities have about people in villages. Um, So, you know, with Kash, like you were saying earlier, it's very interesting because Asan occupies two very, very different spaces, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Sort of westernized Indian or actually Western spaces. Um, Where we're selling to high income women and then completely the opposite, which is low income rural spaces and the amount of sort of judgment uh, misconceptions that exist um, on two levels, one is I think people in the West what they think about people in India so people in the UK having all kinds of ideas about what. Women in India shouldn't shouldn't do on their periods. Um, and then similarly, people in Indian cities have having all kinds of misconceptions about people in rural areas. So the first thing we all, I always hear when I make a pitch or a presentation is oh I live in a city and this isn't normal so it's never gonna work in a village and what what you say to that person is well have you been to that village have you asked people there and the truth is you know firstly the period solutions we have in rural areas are so poor and so uncomfortable that anybody would want something better secondly you know the women and girls in villages are extremely clever, and they make good decisions for their bodies, it's just about access to information, which maybe a person in a city has and a person in a village doesn't, but when you give them access to the same amount of information, here are the different period products available, here are the benefits of each, of course they're going to make an informed decision, Sometimes, and most of the time they end up making a better decision than someone in a city, so we deal with a lot of these misconceptions, which I think can be very frustrating.
0: Hmm. And um, in terms of um, brands that have gone down a similar path, I can think of Wobby Parker um, in the US. Uh, All birds tried that. And there are companies that are embracing that. And one trend that I actually cover in you know in my writing, in my book is uh, the changing attitudes of millennials and Gen Zs. So if you look at the Gen Zs, they're a lot more conscious about the environment, conscious about the people. And I think, or I would imagine that that's an important market uh, for us on.
1: Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, When I started working in this area, a lot of people said to me, um, you know, in India or in in many countries and cultures, there's this idea that um, unmarried women wouldn't want to use an insortable period product. So a lot of people said to me, you know, start with married women or mothers, people in their thirties. And, you know, just for the reasons you're saying, Um, I would say it's almost the reverse is true, Um, women in their 30s and 40s, firstly, they've formed habits over time, they're more conservative, they're more resistant to change, on the contrary, their daughters, you know, Gen Z, people who are 16 today are um, super open to new ideas. Firstly, and secondly, extremely conscious of the environment. So it, we have, teens are a huge market for us. Um, we do a lot of teen content. We have teen brand ambassadors, and we see the highest rates of uptake with teens.
0: Yeah. And I think the among the Gen Zs also, it's the topic of um, deep interest to me. The fact that the customer attitudes are changing and this Gen Z, it's because they're online constantly. So it, it's also good for brands that are able to really understand that culture. So you you could perhaps go into very different markets. Is that something on the cards? Yeah,
1: uh, look, I'm 29 and this is a huge challenge for me because I don't think like a 19 year old. Um, and you know, I might understand Instagram, but I don't understand TikTok. So what we do is we really leave it to the experts. Um, we have... A summer a tiktok intern this summer she's 19 she's grown up in this generation and we're you know really taking ideas from her and letting her run with it and we also have our teen ambassador program which is ages like 14 to 19 and our social media strategy is very much driven by by what they have to say
0: yeah and how about you what does a day in your life look like these days i know you're perhaps traveling uh, so how do you divide your energy
1: yeah it's it's very um varied because there's so many different things that we do uh, i divide my time between the uk which is where we're which is sort of um i would say a hub from which we're trying to expand globally our uh, commercial sales and then i also spend a lot, a lot of time in india focusing on our um partnerships and on our donations um, so, a typical day for me when I'm in the UK is starts really early because I tend to work with my India team. So, you know, start around 7 a.m. and then I work with them till 2, 2 p.m. UK time, which is when their day ends, you know, focusing a lot on our partnerships in India. Um, uh, they do a lot of, I mean, I as well when I'm there, or they do a lot of field visits. So, you know, every week or two they spend a lot of time with our donation partners in the field and then they feedback how that's going. Um, And then the second half of my day, kind of 2 p.m. to 7, 8 p.m., is very much focused on my work here, Um, you know, uh, focusing on our UK website, our UK sales partnerships, expanding to new markets. And it's almost a nice distinction. It's like the first half of the day focuses on India, the second half of the day focuses on global and the timings work out quite well for that. Yeah, and uh, I
0: also meant in terms of say work on product, in terms of yeah. policy, evangelism, sales, uh, hiring, branding.
1: It's. Um, I mean, I think you know, being a founder, it's a complete mess because your <laughs> to do list has like two hundred things on it, and the truth is, you just deal with the things that are most urgent in that moment. So. Yeah. It can be absolutely anything. So, you know, this morning um, at 6 a.m., I had a call with USAID who have recently given us a grant. Um, So that was very much focused on our partnerships and then um, moved on to a little bit of marketing with our Indian team. And then just before I got on the call with you, I actually spent two hours physically packaging some products because we don't yet have a warehouse in the UK. So I'm as hands-on as like packaging our cups and shipping them off. So it's really mad. It's a mix of everything.
0: Yeah, that's the adventure. (laughs) You know, uh, I asked this to um, all, all my um, friends and teachers who come on Network Capital, if you were wildly successful in the coming decade in achieving your mission, what would the world look like? What would your world look like? And what what's, what's really the change that you want to see?
1: Um, well, if we achieve our mission, then I would say no. And this is, you know, it's limitless, but no woman or girl would have an unsafe period Uh, no woman or girl would miss out on essential daily activities that we take for granted like going to school going to work just having fun because they are on their period that is exactly what we're trying to achieve um your income should never determine uh, whether you have whether you know you have access to simple things like going to school on your period
0: awesome um how can people find you in India? And UK, we'll obviously share uh, this conversation wildly. Um
1: Tell it's, us. It's really simple. Just it's Our name is Asan Cup. It's asancup.com. You can search for us on all the social media channels, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, we're there, LinkedIn as well. We're trying to be more active on LinkedIn um, and soon on TikTok. <laughs> so yeah, Asankup, you'll find us. That's A-S-A-N-C-U-P.
0: Awesome. Is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't? Or any parting advice message that you have for friends around the world?
1: Gosh, that's a really good question. Um, I think, um, yeah, I think maybe for the network capital community, I would say, um, you know, that I always see these discussions on, um, network capital, like I've gotten into these three masters and I don't know what's the best one and and what to do with my career. And I think, um, yeah, I would just say, uh, I mean, it's, it's sometimes the best things come out of happy accidents. So you don't have to think too much about, you know, where do I want to be in five years? If you're really enjoying what you're doing right now and you're stimulated, chances are you'll be doing something great in five years. So, um, yeah, I would just say focus on the present and trying to work that you love.
0: Ira, this was a pleasure. Um, I love your energy and I love the seriousness with which you're pursuing this mission. All the best and we we are your cheerleaders all around.
1: Thank you. That's so kind. Thank you so much. (laughs)